Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 96 for June 14th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 20. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time to talk security with our friend Steve Gibson from his secure, highly secure and unknown workplace somewhere in Southern California. Tempest protected. Here he is, Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you again. This is a question and answer session. And we do. This is our 20th, our 20th question and answer session. And people really, I get lots of good feedback from people. In fact, now they're writing notes in saying, "Okay, this is for and they're telling me which one they want to appear on. It's like, (laughs) uh, okay, Uh, it doesn't quite work like that. However, I bet there are a few people who want to appear on the next one we do, which will be episode 100. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, that's right. That's a Q&A. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. yeah. Uh, geez, is 100 div- evenly divisible by four? <laughs> Not if it's I... a leap year. <laughs> or I something. think it is. Yeah. Um, we're going to uh, do that in a second. I wanna, do want to thank uh, the folks at Astaro because they are uh, our longtime sponsors over a year now. They are a great security company, one of the best known. And one of the things I really like about Astaro is they're based on open source. They're based on Linux. They use the best of breed in open source and a commercial software. So you get a really great solution. Take a look at version 7. You get all sorts of new features. There's web filtering for content, antivirus, anti-spyware, instant messenger, and peer-to-peer control. You get network protection like firewalls, of course, remote access, VPN, and intrusion protection. You're pr- pr- protected against spam and phishing. There's dual virus protection for email, transparent encryption at the source. I mean, it goes on and on, and all of this in one little box. Looks about looks like a router, but boy, it's sure a heck of a lot more than a router. If you want to find out more, you can get an Astaro Security Gateway for a free trial in your business. Just call 877-4-ASTARO. And the new version 7 has a new home use package free of charge, including the base license and all subscriptions, plus Astaro up-to-date, absolutely free. Absolutely free. There are some limitations. 10 IPs, 1,000 concurrent connections. That should be enough for you. So basically, you don't have to purchase the home user subscription bundle anymore for 79 euros. They're giving it away. These are good people making a great product that really does the job. That's why so many people trust Astaro. That's why we trust Astaro and encourage you to use them. ASTARO.com or call 877, the number four, Astaro. Shall I just, uh, what, what? A thousand concurrent connections on the home That version? seems like that should be enough. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't, I don't have that many on GRC server. I know. Isn't that fun? They're, that's what I love about these guys. I mean, they're just, you know, they're not, they're not trying to take, take anybody, anybody's right. money. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just really great. But I do encourage you to buy the product because uh, you have to for commercial use and it really is great. I yep. guess having all those home users really gives you a good test bed too, you know? Anyway, let's, uh, let's get on here. I've got a, a PDF open. 
That contains... Well, I've got a couple a couple mailbag uh, pieces oh, here. Oh, oh, good. All right. I didn't even yeah. know we did mailbags on the Q&A days. I thought we we're already answering questions, but we have a mailbag. We might as well do our uh, mailbag. I guess it's, it's quick. It's just two, it's just two things. Um, Justin Alcorn of Cleveland Heights, Ohio, writes, uh, he, had a, he had a number of neat points. He said, a couple of quick comments on your fourth factor episode. First, I'm glad you're covering these authentication issues. Too many people assume that a username and a password is two-factor authentication, <laughs> including a government agency no. <laughs> that lost a laptop and assured the public that it was secure because it was protected by two-factor oh, authentication. Man, yeah, that... meaning the meaning the normal Windows logon. Oh man, I hope that was not disinformation. I hope that was just yeah. ignorance, or maybe not. Actually, well, which is worse? <laughs> it certainly sounded good. Then he then he says there is a wonderful add-on for Firefox called Password Maker. It allows you to use a single password. And it hashes your password and the domain name of the site you are currently yes. on yeah. to create a unique random-looking password for each site. Since the hash is created the same way every, t- every time, you can get your password from any computer with the browser or use the online JavaScript version if you are on a different computer. Yep. I use something similar from Zarate Labs. Same exact idea. Yep, and I like it. And for what it's worth, there is also an add-on for IE um, they don't have screenshots of it. They've got screenshots of the Firefox version on on Password Maker. But I just wanted to I, I thought that was a cool thing and I, I've heard about it, so I wanted to relay that from from Justin, our listener. That's a good way and to then, do it. And then he says, when talking about the PGP web of trust, there are two things you didn't mention. Actually, there's a lot of things I didn't mention because I was trying to keep it somewhat simple and, and you know maintainable. He says, you can choose how much you trust each signatory of a certificate. If you know people who just sign anything presented to them, you can trust them only a little. If you know people who are very careful, you can trust them a lot. Then you can sum up the trusts of people who signed a given certificate I added that part for clarity to determine if you trust the certificate of a new contact. Also, when determining whether to sign someone's key, you should verify the key fingerprint to make sure you're signing the correct key and not one that was presented to you by a man in the middle. And of course, he's absolutely correct about all of that. Mm. So, you know, there was more complexity, a lot more actually, to the whole mature implementation of the PGP Web of Trust, specifically this notion that you you get different sort of point credits for who signed it and how much you trust them. You then can, can like create rules in your system that will automatically decide whether this is trustworthy enough or not. Right, right, right. And then um, Christopher Adams, also a uh, Security Now listener, he wrote, we have Albuquerque's largest Christian homeschool association meeting next week at the church I work for. And right on cue, the laptop that contains all the data for this event crashed. He says the backtop was stored in the North Pole with Santa where the Easter Bunny and the Keebler Elves are keeping it company. <laughs> what he's saying is there's no backup. We Or either that or when we went to look for it, we couldn't find it. Oh, boy. So he says, now, there were no problems with the hard drive, just a problem with the power adapter. So we simply needed the data quickly so we could move on with our work. I popped the drive into a USB enclosure, and sure enough, the drive failed. 
And so he says, Perens, I guess having the power abruptly cut on a regular basis <laughs> was not good for the laptop drive. No. And actually, I, I chose this one because this fee, this actually perfectly fits with one of the questions in the Q&A. So he says, after fighting through numerous error-performing in-page operation errors and learning that the solution was to buy a new hard drive, Aye. I quickly put the hard drive in a, lap, in a desktop case via a nifty $5 adapter along with a CD containing Spinrite. Four and a half hours later, the surface of the 60-gig laptop drive had been refreshed, and it now worked perfectly. Wow. He said, I've been anxiously awaiting a moment like this where Spinrite paid for itself and am happy to say it was worth every penny. Wow. And we bought four copies for a site license, oh, exclamation that's point. That's great. So he, he had actually written this to sales and so he's at GRC and he said, thanks, everyone. I cannot describe how much this has helped us. And it is a great case study for when I propose a file server with RAID uh -huh. and a backup system instead of relying on individual hard drives. That's what I like about you, Steve. You don't mind re reminding people that they wouldn't need spin, right, if they would just back their stuff up. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be, you know, the, the solution that saved them the one time they desperately needed it and to suggest, you know... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I hope to be able to help them a second and a third and a fourth time. And, of course, we've got owners whose Spinrite, who ha, whose, whose butts have been saved by Spinrite throughout, you know, its 20-year its life. But it really, for mission-critical stuff, you don't want to rely on a single spindle no, because, no. They're, as we continually prove, they're just not safe enough. Spindles die. Uh, let, us, let us get to our questions, shall we? We have so many of them. Our, our, our typical 12. Our typical 12, starting with Mark Brown of Cumming, Georgia, who says, I listened to episode 90. That was the one we did on multi-factor authentication, the first three factors. Uh, and I wanted to know how to check for the certificate when I'm going to my banking site to make sure I'm really on the correct site. So he's in his browser. He's gone to his banking site. How does he know? Yep. Now, we've talked about this many times, but I don't think this is something I could say often enough because I'll tell you, Leo, I mean, you know me, I'm... I'm not running AV. I'm I'm behind that. I'm I I don't do scripting. I guess my point is, you know, I'm security conscious, but I feel that I'm I'm generally pretty safe. Well, having said that, one of the things I always do when I find myself about to enter my credit card information somewhere is I first make sure I've got HTTPS and that the browser thinks I'm secure, then I right-click on the page, choose Properties, and then choose View Certificate mm. to make sure that, you know, that I mean, just to verify that no new phishing scheme has come along, which is spoofing this page. And I always do this on PayPal because, of course, the larger the target is, the more likely it is to be spoofed. And so I make sure that the certificate is that I'm viewing for the site is HTTPS colon slash slash www.paypal.com. So you want to right click on the page, then tell the browser, you know, look at the page properties, then click on view certificate to see the certificate. Then the one other thing you want to do is look at the 
at the chain of trust. That is, look to see who signed that certificate. Because if it's Boris Badenov that signed it, then the certificate means nothing. The certificate is only as, as useful as the entity that is vouching for it, specifically, you know, someone like Equifax or, or, or VeriSign or, or, or somebody who is a standard signing authority. If your own, for example, if your corporate, if, you're, if you had a browser had a, a corporate certificate installed in it, then your corporate proxy could be decrypting your connection, looking at it, and then re-encrypting it. And so that's something you might want to know. So you want to make sure that that your certificate has been that is the certificate of the of the site you're presented with has been signed by an, an authority you trust, and that you've got a certificate for that site, and that will verify you're actually connected to where you think you are. Now it's a little different, slightly, but not significantly different. In Firefox, you still right click. You, you and by the way, you have to. Be at HTTPS, right? I mean, otherwise there won't be a certificate. Correct. Uh, so you, so I went to Amazon.com. Normally it's HTTP. I added the S. Now I'm at HTTPS, Amazon.com. I right-click on the page in, in uh, Firefox, select Page Info, and wow. then click the Security tab, and you can view the certificate from there. And it's a uh, it's, uh, RSA data security. Are they okay? I think we trust them, yes. <laughs> we trust them. And we trust them. <laughs> That's where you get yours from, right? Or is it VeriSign? I, I, I've always been using VeriSign. It's like, ah, eh, why not? I'll yeah. stay with them. Yeah. Very good question, though. And I think it's well worth saying again and again. Paul Dixon of Phoenix, Arizona, is concerned about biometrics. He writes, I'm of the opinion that gathering biometric data for identification purposes should be illegal. It's fine you have the data on your notebook locked with your fingerprint, but can you or your estate survive if the data becomes inaccessible? If you're in an accident where you lose a body part? Are you prepared to not being able to access the disk contents? Of course, backups would help, but what about changes since the backup? Disk recovery is going to be extremely costly. Alternatively, if you're separate from your notebook, no one would be able to access your data until you're rejoined. Not even trusted family can be help. Can help. I've been told by someone who no longer has fingerprints, it's quite common for nurses to lose their fingerprints. Hmm. The fingerprint scanner might must be the caustic chemicals they're using or something. The fingerprint know. scanner that... Might not be very useful for them. Then there's a problem of whether to replace a replaced fingerprint scanner on your notebook will scan your finger in the same manner. See, it raises some interesting questions. I'm not sure Ill, making it illegal is <laughs> that seems that's going a little far. But he's, well, yeah, he makes some good it, points. He really does. Now, so, so I wanted to bring up. It brings up a couple things. First of all, um, for what it's worth, the fingerprint scan, for example, that I use for my laptop is a convenience measure. If I'm unable to authenticate with my fingerprint, I can always fall back to a password. Uh, it doesn't eliminate the password. Exactly. Right. So, so it, so it, it's basically the if my fingerprint matches what it expects, then it's providing the password to the BIOS in order to unlock the machine uh-huh. and to unlock the hard drive. Um, and on this note, I wanted to mention that when I was doing some research into this stuff a couple weeks ago, I discovered Hitachi has announced and will soon, if not already, they are shipping the, I mean, the galactic perfect solution <laughs> for laptop hard drives. Wow. It has bulk AES-256 encryption built in. To the hard drive. So, 
so that it's not just locking the hard drive. You have to give the hard drive, anytime you power it on, a the, the cryptographic key that it will then use for all communication with the magnetic surface, mm. which, which means, I mean, this is what you want, which means that, that all the data on the hard drive is always encrypted, not just locked by a lock in the hard drive's own BIOS, where you could have a data recovery company get past that and then access it. I mean, we're talking strength that is that is absolutely transparent. They're doing bulk encryption that does not slow down the drive at all. That is, it's on-the-fly encryption to the surface. I'm, I mean, this is exactly what you want. Then, if you lose control of your laptop, it's like, well, that's too bad, but at least nobody can get to the data. But what about you know, Paul's point where, that nobody can get to the data? What if something happens to you and your family needs to see the data? Well, for example, um, in the first place, you know, when, for example, I authenticated a number of my fingers just in case if something did happen to, to my right yeah. to my right hand, I can authenticate with the other. And being me, you know, I sort of alternate consciously just to make sure that both of my my index fingers stay, you know, stay happy. But again, in the worst case. I've got a password. I don't want to because right. I'm, as you know, I've got a super strong password. So I'm not going to be typing that in easily all the time. And in fact, because my fingerprint can help me type in my super strong password, I was able to use a much stronger password than I would normally have bothered to. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and but again, you know, you could certainly, you know, you could answer Paul's Paul's concern just by knowing that you always have the password as your backstop for your fingerprint. I think he and didn't I, know that. So that's good to know. I didn't know yep, that. Yep. And that was the point I wanted to make. That yep. and the, and to remind, or I forgot to mention this Hitachi drive and I've been wanting to because, oh baby, I mean, that'll be, that'll end up being standard equipment on laptop drives before long. And it really provides us with the security that we need. Yeah. Interesting. John Everett writes from Virginia. I just finished listening to your sequel injection security now podcast when you get to the part about how a hacker could get an improperly configured machine to divulge a list of all usernames and associated passwords i had to write and ask do people really stand up production websites that record passwords in plain text Uh uh-huh i'm no security expert but i thought the days of a password file he's this is these are the unix passwords p-a-s-s-w-d file or equivalent were long gone isn't it standard practice now to hash the password plus some salt into a key that's stored? They call these encrypted password hashes. So even if a hacker got a list of usernames and the keys, that wouldn't be of immediate use because you can't enter the key directly into the website. Maybe you were glossing over this aspect in the podcast. In any case, I heartily agree with you. SQL injection remains a frightening vulnerability on the web. You you were giving that as an example. It's not the only thing you can do with SQL injection. Well, correct. Uh, but he's he's... The point I wanted to make, the reason I brought this up was that that the insecurity is not only in the SQL injection problem, but in exactly what he says. That is to say, a a when he talks about there are well-known ways to do this right, he's absolutely correct. It doesn't mean that you know random Joe PHP programmer who just bought PHP for dummies. And and it turns out that book is 
unfortunately mm-hmm. correctly named in his case. Aptly named. <laughs> it, it, does, it doesn't mean he's going to do it right because he's the coder. He can do anything he wants. He can store them in a text file and, 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 and look them up, you know, have the, have the passwords in plain text. And so it's in, and this is the, the message that I, that I want to remind people of. It is incumbent upon the developer to implement security. The nature of Web 2.0 stuff is that this is a responsibility of the developer, and you know there are no there there are no requirements. Nothing in the language suggests it. If you have a developer who isn't aware of storing hashed passwords and then comparing the hashes rather than the passwords, which does create exactly the enhanced security that John's talking about, if you have a programmer who just doesn't know about that then you're not going to have it. So, yes, it's just one more area of insecurity. Right. Thomas Brock of Santa Monica wonders, as both a longtime SpinRite user and an employee of a large computer security company, I really enjoy listening to you and Leo. I have used and developed for Windows machines since Windows 2, 386 edition. I purchased my first Mac about a year ago. I really like it. One thing I've never wrapped my head around, though, is the keychain. Every time I get a Something wants to access your blah blah keychain. I always click allow because I don't know what's going on. Could you please explain the Mac OS X keychain? And Leo, this one is for oh, you. Thanks. <laughs> no warning. Well, I think keychain is actually one of the nicest features of OS X. It is a secure store of your passwords. When you use Safari uh, on the web, uh, it stores the passwords in this secure store. The store is unlocked by default. When you log in, uh, if the keychain has the same password credential that you use when you log in, it will automatically unlock the keychain. Uh, so, so that's nice. You can change the ke- the keychain password, or conversely, change your master login password to your account, and then you'll have to provide a separate login to open up the keychain. But we see, what he's talking about is a second layer of security, which I think is a very valuable layer of security. When you change a program, a program hasn't been used before with Keychain, when you update the program or reinstall it, the first time it tries to access the Keychain, and this is one of the reasons the Mac is more secure, the Mac says, this program wants to access the Keychain. Is it okay to do so? So just as with all of these alerts, Windows 2 with the UAC, you've got to pause when you see that message and say, hmm, why is the yep. Keychain being accessed? Who's doing it? Yep. And does it make sense? So for, matter, if you, no. if you, if, and by the way, most Mac programs do use keychain. Any program that has a password, uh, for instance, like Safari, will use keychain. So here's, here's kind of what happens. You, you updated Safari using, you know, the Apple update and you use it. The first time you launch Safari, it says Safari wants to access the keychain. Is this okay? Now you think, well, I just updated Safari. I use Safari. Safari use keychain. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. And I think that's the that's the point on all of these you, these alerts is you've got to think about who's asking for permission. Yep. In fact, it's funny. You know, uh, you and I were talking before we began recording that I just updated my Skype from two point zero something or other to two point six something or other, and sure enough, I got exactly this dialogue saying, um, "Hey, Skype wants to access the keychain. Do you want to you know give it permission to do so now and in the future?" And it's like, okay. uh, Yep, I know why it's asking, so let's go ahead. And you can safely say no, in which case Skype won't provide your password for you automatically. Right. So 
I think, in, you know, this is actually kind of a response to your previous question. Apple has, I think, done passwords right. They don't store passwords in clear text on the drive. They store it in a secured store that is highly secure using uh, strong encryption. And that's what this keychain uh, facility is. And it's a very useful facility. There's a lot of features in there people don't know about. It will generate secure passwords for you automatically, automatically store them. It's, it's like a password utility, the kind you'd go out and buy, but it's built into the OS X. I think Keychain is is really cool. Where you get into trouble is when you've changed your password on your master login or you move a Keychain from one system to another. Then people get annoyed by it because it keeps asking for a password. You can right. also change the default behavior. Normally, Keychain will stay logged in the entire time you're logged into your system. But you can change that. You could say, after 30 minutes, ask again. Ah, oh, very nice. Not, probably not a bad idea to do that. Well, and you know, clearly the, the, the OS ten also has a, an, a keychain API that the That's applications right. are aware of and are able to access. And Windows has nothing like that. If you no, I think this is a great idea. If you open uh, the the uh, it's in the utility applications utility folder keychain access, you can see all the programs uh, that use keychain and what they're storing in there. Very nice. And, and uh, that's where you would also change your uh, your preferences. And they have a, a first aid and so forth. Uh, you can clear the log. You can synchronize the login password. Um, there's a lot of keychain key settings you can change as well. I think I think this is really great. It uses certificates. It's it uses uh, standards. Um, this is an example of where Apple has done things right. And as a result, this is one of the things I think that makes uh, OS 10 more secure. Well, I would say that Thomas Brock got a beautiful answer to his question. Well, good. I made it up as I was going along. <laughs> Bob G. of Auburn, Alabama is worried about the health of his DVR. In Q&A 19, you talked about how the drive in a TiVo constantly spins. More than that, it constantly writes. Exactly. It's constantly recording. Yeah. The DVR that Charter Cable uses is a Moxie box DVR. Works similarly to a TiVo. It would have to. If, if it has the ability to pause live yep. programming, that's how it does it. During the podcast, you said something about how a user should be careful when turning off a DVR to reduce the impact on the drive. Because we have short power outages of 15 to 20 seconds in my area. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I've gotten UPSs for my desktop PCs and network equipment. Should I get one for the DVR? I asked when I inst- it was installed and was told no. Well, of course he was told no. Because, you know, people look at it and think of it as just sort of a consumer appliance. Right. right. And, and I just, so I, I put this in here when I ran across Bob's question because, you know, I'm, and I've even defended it once because I think we had another listener who said, I really don't think it's, re- it's recording right, all the time. Right. Well, we've, we demonstrated that it must be because it's storing 30 minutes and the TiVo or, and other DVRs don't have nearly that much RAM. So it's got to be recording it on the hard drive. Let me, and, I just want to point something out because I think this is really important. Uh, there, it, it is perfectly possible to hear a question like that and say, well, let me find out and go research it. But I like how you work. You, you, you use logic. You thought about it. And this is, I think, what distinguishes somebody like you from a rote computer expert. Uh, you understand kind of the rationality of this. And you're able to think about it and quite quickly say, oh, no, there's no way it could because this is how it would have to work. And I yeah. like that. I mean, we could verify it. And I know it's true because it's, it's completely logical. Yep. So he does want a, I mean, if he's concerned about this, 
a UPS makes a lot of sense. I, you know, the, these devices can survive, obviously, some power outages because there's no on-off switch on them. You, you plug them in and they're just on, and just like a cable box is pretty much on all the time. In fact, even when you turn your cable box off, it's still showing you the time of day. And it's on inside. It's waiting. Because, you know, because we know when you plug them in, they take about, you know, five minutes right. to boot themselves up and right. loading their, right. their code from the, you know, over the cable. So, so these things are going all the time. And we do know that if you suddenly power down a hard drive when it's in the middle of writing, it will destroy the sector or sectors that it's on top of and you know that's going to give a little a little road bump at that point when when it comes around now they're built to be tolerant of that but over time these this adds up so i would say give yourself a ups and maybe after you put it on a ups if you can uh, often these cable boxes have all kinds of security funky you know triangular headed screws and things but of course i've opened mine up uh, and modified them extensively. Um, <laughs> if you can take the drive out, and well, unfortunately, I don't mean didn't mean this to be a Spinrite commercial, but I don't know of anything else other than Spinrite that would do the right thing, and that is run it on Spinrite. Maybe Bob already owns a copy of Spinrite, in which case, definitely run it on Spinrite to clean the drive up after you've put your DVR on a UPS, and you'll be in good shape from there on. You know, uh, thinking thinking about this, I, I would imagine that, and I don't know for a fact that uh, that DVRs would use a journaled file system. Um, they don't. In fact, they well, don't. I, I, I can only speak for the TiVo because I know TiVo cold, and it is an, a standard EXT two using Linux, riser or something, huh? Yep, Linux file system. It is, and it's an old version, an old kernel of Linux, and, a, and right. a small one. That's not right. a big fancy one. I remember now. EXE three and riser and other file systems are journaled. OS ten is journaled. NTFS is journaled. Let, let, this is a, a bonus question. <laughs> Doesn't that give you a little bit more uh, reliability in cases like this? Um, kinda. What the what the, the the problem is? All of these systems are trying to be error tolerant, but they're relying on the drive to be the sole store mm. of 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 their state. What NTFS's system, for example, guarantees is that the the way it writes. The file system, it's the, the file system structure will be maintained, but not the data. And nothing can solve the problem that when you pull the plug and power fails during writing the sector, that that sector cannot have a proper checksum at the end. Mm. So it's going and there may be some power glitch happening. So it, the system is not going to be happy about right. it when it re-encounters that again. And so... So NTFS, in fact, this is something people don't understand. NTFS protects its structure, but not the user's data. That's not protected. Right. So a journal system writes the data out in a batch. Is that what it means to be journaled? Um, yes. And the idea being that it's, it's creating a journal of changes so that if something happens, it's able to roll back to a to a to a point where the system was in the, the hard drive and file system were in a consistent state ah. and and it may then be able to roll forward from the journal given if it's re, if the journal is also being written to the hard drive it can roll forward to recreate the transactions which may have been damaged 
during the uh, the problem that it that occurred while it was journaling. So it's more robust, but not Im- impervious to problems. Well, and and again, nothing can solve the problem that power failure failure during a sector write will make a bad sector. Right, it absolutely right. will. And then when the system encounters it again, the question is, what does it do? Right. And it happens to be that's one of the things that Spinrite fixes. It, it like fixes all the checksums on all the sectors on your drive. Oh, interesting. Now, of course, when you're playing back stuff on a DVR, a bad sector here or there just means a glitch in the video. It's not the end of the world. It's not, but of course they're they're cumulative. And here in 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 Auburn, Alabama, where Bob says he gets out outages constantly, <laughs> pretty bad. You know, it will add up, yeah. and I'll be I believe he'll end up seeing some problems. On right. the other hand, he can just tell this cable company, hey. This thing went bad. Give me another one. He's and, only you know, renting it. Exactly. Yeah. Lars Solberg listens in Norway. He's been comparing podcast advice. He's a bit confused by some apparent discrepancies. Well, we're always right. So I'm just going to say that right now. I'm a long when in doubt ask. <laughs> yeah. I'm a longtime listener of the Security Now podcast. I also listen to a bunch of other podcasts. One of them started talking about data backup and how long-time archival data can be safe on a hard drive that was turned off just sitting in the closet or a safe. So I thought, well, I already know this. Mr. Gibson already told me, right? But they said on one of Norwegian's biggest IT podcasts that a hard disk drive is going to live longer if you keep the power on than if you use it as a backup solution. I clearly remember you and Leo talked about this, but I've been searching and reading through the text versions. I can't find it. Have I been dreaming? Can you clarify? How long will a powered-off hard drive live? That's a great question, and I think what's happened is Lars got a little tripped up in some detail of what we're talking about, which is why I thought this was a great question, because, Leo, I actually get a huge number of people wanting to talk about backup solutions, and it's something I've been avoiding because we're security now, and I don't want to be you know, too much pandering to you know, spin right and backup stuff, but at some point we're going to have to do a show on hard drive backup solutions, because it's a, it's a question that we're getting all the time. In this case, the danger that a hard drive has, it, okay, first I should say we're both right. The, the major Norwegian biggest IT podcast is right, and we were right, because what we neither of us were talking about is power cycling. That's the danger for hard drives is turning them off and on and off and on and off and on. I work to minimize the power cycling on all of my computers where if I know, for example, that I'm not going to be using a computer for several days, then I'll turn it off. But I, I will never turn a machine off if I know that I'm going to be back on it in another hour because it's the, it's the thermal heating and cooling, heating and cooling, power on, power off, power on, power off. That's the problem. So I presume the, the guys who did the Norwegian podcast were talking about keeping a drive running all the time being better than powering it on and off. That's absolutely true. I was talking about putting the drive on the shelf which obviously keeps it powered off all the time, and that's better than powering it on and off. So either extreme, all the time running, like you know the drives at level three on GRC servers are on all the time, or all the time off, much better than power cycling constantly. The heating and cooling is bad for them. It really is. Now, if you, if you, I know a lot of people do this. Uh, in fact, a lot of video production facilities, because hard drives are cheap, 
and big. We'll just put data on them. They'll wrap them up in bubble, bubble wrap and throw them in the closet. Uh, do you have to worry about things like stiction, uh, bearings kind of uh, getting gooey, things like that, if they're not used for a long period of time? Well, decades, maybe. I mean, but, you know, I mean, for really, really, really good archival storage, all the studies show that hard drives will last a long time, but also recordable DVD, recordable media. There, there's, um, I, I, in fact, I, I bought a bunch the other day. It was, it was an archive grade DVD hmm. that is a gold. It's you know gold, gold. It will only record at one X. It won't let itself be recorded any hmm. faster than that. And it is, it is built for hundred year storage, wow. and you know made very stable. So, so, so certainly decades, I think, are safe. I've got old original version one IDE drives that I use for testing new versions of Spinrite. And I don't, I don't dust them off very often, but they still fire up when I, when I use them. So problems like stiction, I think have been largely solved and um, taking a drive and just putting it on a shelf for many, many years is the best thing you can do for it. It'll, it'll still be there when you plug it in again, as long as you still have an interface that's compatible with Exactly. You know, I think you know. really the truth is in ba- in the case of backup, uh, no backup lasts forever. And, and, and as you point out, no medium will always be readable. So probably the prudent thing to do if you do have something you want to keep 100 years is every decade or even more often you want to copy it to a more modern medium. Yep, because if, for example, try to find an SD controller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you can't, that was the, something that didn't last very long. Heck with SD, still- try to find a SCSI controller these days. Right. I mean, it doesn't take long. You got some stuff on zip disks. Good luck. Uh huh. Orb. Good luck. I mean, that's the problem with this stuff is it changes. A decade is probably even too long. Maybe every every five years. Then you refresh the data. You make sure it's good. You put it on something that's more modern that you can read. And I would guess that as time goes by, these archival solutions get better and better, too. And, and of course, the point is, if this stuff, if this data is really that important, then you do need to be aware of it and to give it the attention it deserves right. if it's that important. Most stuff isn't. I can't, yep. I, not much of what I do would is worth saving a hundred years. <laughs> you know, and I've got, I have original, I have drives from, that I've pulled from old machines, carefully labeled, you know, here's in 1988, no my, my, my C drive. It's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, no- maybe, maybe a walk down nostalgia <laughs> lane would be, you know, interesting, but yeah, I wonder you know, what your, clearly, uh, it's clearly nothing I need on that drive. Your, your MS dot, MS, MS dos dot sys file. Your, well, <laughs> remember the days when we actually knew oh, what all those files were, Leo. <laughs> wow. Look at that. It's an auto exec dot bad file. Bruce in Gilbert, Arizona, where about sticky fingers he says steve i have a question on the security of a fingerprint scanner on a laptop you state it's all you use to protect your laptop for login and to decrypt your drive or to boot up i've read that these scanners are pretty easy to fool with a copy of a person's fingerprint somebody uh somebody did a test and it, you could make it out of play-doh and it worked pretty well uh i've read that these scanners oh I, we just said that would it be easy to get the person's fingerprint from a lost or stolen laptop merely by dusting it for prints Sounds like a CSI episode. Your fingerprints would be all over it from handling it. You can also tell which finger is which by the prints left on the keyboard home keys, if that made any difference. Yeah, interesting idea. What do you think, Steve? There are two classes of fingerprint scanner. The the scanners, which have a, a large rectangular array 
where you push your fingerprint against it are inherently insecure for exactly that reason. You, you can get a, you know, make a Xerox, a static Xerox copy from an image and push that on the scanner and it'll go, wow, this guy's got a high contrast thumb, but it'll work. <laughs> What, what, what I like, the only fingerprint scanners I trust are the dynamic ones, not static, where uh, they have either a two or four pixel high optical array. And actually, they're not even optical. They're actually capacitive. The, really? the fingerprint, yes, the fingerprint scanners that you see now on laptops that are that little strip just that, a bar. You, that, that you yeah. Wipe, yeah, the little yeah. bar that you wipe your finger across, they're not optical. They're capacitive. They work on the same principle as those stud finders where, where you know, the, 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 those yellow stud finders, you scan them across the wall and it's able to tell when the density hmm. behind the wall increases. Those are that uses a capacitive technology, which is the same thing that that these that these dynamic fingerprint scanners use. So, for example, you could not swipe a Xerox of the image over the scanner. You actually have to have a 3D creation of the fingerprint. So not only does it have to be 3D, but it's got to be dynamic. You've got to move it across this scanner. And so using this several pixels worth of, of – of, I'm sorry, I keep saying pixel. Well, I guess they are pixels. They're, they're, they're not optical scanner pixels. They're capacitive scanner pixels. Mm -hmm. So using, using that strip, it's able to track the motion, seeing the image move from one row to the next – so it knows how far and how fast your finger is moving, but it's not using light. It's using the differences in capacitive um, reactance in your finger, which wow. is much harder to fool. So not only dynamic, but capacitive. And that's a pretty secure way to pick up a fingerprint. Fascinating. Alex Banks, writing from Los Angeles, uh, asks, back in episode 68, 68? Wow. Q&A. A listener want to know about dual quad core Intel processors. You and Leo commented this is probably overkill and that dual dual cores are sufficient. What about heavy VM applications? Would the, these are the virtual machines that we talk so much about, things like parallels and VMware. Would the additional processing power greatly enhance VM performance? Well, there, this is an interesting question from a couple points. First of all, the, the big load in VM is RAM. Because virtual machines essentially have to just take a chunk of RAM out of, this, uh, out of the hosting system and commit it to their own OS. That is, when you're running, for example, Parallels on a Mac and you're running Windows, there isn't a practical means for Windows to share the main system memory in its virtual machine with the host's memory. It has to have all, whatever it is, 100 well, I'm sorry, 512 megs or a gig or whatever. So heavy VM uses, that is where you've got multiple VMs, they're all going to be grabbing a static chunk of memory from the main system. So really, memory is the problem there. Now, having said that, of course, the more processors you have, the better, except that what you quickly run into is resource starvation in other places than processing power. Mm. For example... You, you can end up where, as I said, you don't have enough memory or you just can't get, you can't get enough 
access to the hard drives because right. you've got processors that are doing so much that suddenly they're not the bottleneck. So, you know, as in any, uh, any examination of a system, it's always the weakest link or, or, or the biggest bottleneck that causes the problem. And it often might that's be, I.O. I mean, frequently that's I.O. Yes, that's exactly the, the, um, the, the direction I was going to go in this. When, I, when we were being d- uh, DDoSed, uh, being hit with den- distributed denial of service attacks, you know, six or seven years ago, I did some, some study of what it would take to build a, a system that could respond to that. And it turned out that the PCI bus was instantly bottlenecked. That is, I couldn't get, no matter what fast code I wrote in the processor, no matter how fast the processor was or how many of them I had, I could not get a useful amount of bandwidth across the PCI bus to the network adapter. The PCI bus was the problem. So, so again, it's at some point, you just end up with too much engine and not enough wheel. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I love that, in fact. Now, you're, you used to drive, so you, you know what that means. Too much engine and not enough wheel. I don't know what it means, but I like it. Yep. Uh, you see, I have to say, I have a quad-core uh, Mac Pro run parallels all the time. It runs swiftly, beautifully in that. And I don't think having an 8-core, which is what he's talking about, the, the, quad, the dual quads, I don't know if an eight core would make much of a difference, frankly. Well, I, I I built a machine not long ago that I think I've referred to here. I did get a myself a quad core Pentium, and boy, is it fast yeah. for compressing for compressing media. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness! I mean, it is it will spoil you in a heartbeat. Where I mean, as long as you've got a media compression technology that understands multiple cores and multiple threads. I mean, it's just shocking how fast it is because there you are massively compute bound. Of course, now I'm going to get a call from the city at home guys who are going to say, <laughs> we come on, get your screensaver going, Gibson. We want to use those quad cores on, to, to, to find the aliens. Well, that's what they found with, uh, with uh, the uh, PlayStation 3s, which have these new cell processors. And effectively, I think they have eight or nine cores. Um, they really do very well with these uh, distributed uh, applic- computing applications. They, they, they rack up CPU cycles fast. Well, in fact, I've been messing around with um, Avid Liquid 7 uh, doing some, some DVD production from my homeowners association. And many of the special effects systems, or the, that, that software itself requires that you use a, you know, a powerful video card because what they're doing is they're now offloading a lot of this work into the GPU, the graphics processing unit, uh-huh. because these, these are, our graphics systems have become so powerful now. Yeah, and, and I, I run uh, all the time a, a little CPU meter in my uh, menu. It's a Mac program called Menu Meters. And I rarely, I have to say, peg it. But it is when you do things like uh, rendering, uh, con- you know, uh, uh, transcoding video, things like that, where it re- really is processor intensive. Right. But it's hard, though, to get four processors pegged. I have to say, four uh, two-point-something gigahertz processors, that's a lot of, lot of processing power. Yep. Uh, continuing on, um, Mike in Long Island has been experiencing email grief. My ISP provides email via pop and SMTP as most do. However, they've caused much grief of late due to the much grief due to the following situation. The email addresses that my wife and I present to the world are in the form of my first name at last 
This domain is owned and maintained by my brother for various members of our extended family, as well as some of his customers. However, he's not in a position to provide storage, merely forwarding. Mail that goes to that address is then forwarded to the real address given to me by my ISP. The problem is my ISP seems to have some sort of anti-spam policy in place and appears to be bouncing some emails that are referred through this family domain. Yep. Yeah, I'm very curious because I do the same thing. Evidently, some sort of ham-fisted attempt to protect me. Well, it's not ham-fisted. It's, you're going to see more and more of it, actually. Uh-huh. Worse still, they refuse to admit they're even doing so, making it impossible for me to convince them to whitelist this domain. I'm considering signing up with an email hosting service like Fastmail and referring my emails there in the hopes of better results. Can you recommend any other courses of action? What's going on, Steve? Well, it's exactly as you said, Leo. It is, it is ISPs finally beginning to, to do what they can to minimize email you know, abuse in the form of spam. He, the, the problem is there is no good solution for him except to use a, an ISP that would be friendly to the idea of receiving this relayed mail. We've talked about before the, the, um, the SPF framework, where, which is becoming increasingly popular, or even um, uh, Yahoo uses domain keys. I think Google is able to use both. Um, uh, the idea being that, that you authenticate the server as the source of your email. So, so the problem is this guy is trying to send email from his ISP that has a different domain than the ISP. For example, if, if, if I were Steve at Cox.net, and I, I would be using Cox's SMTP server to deposit my mail, it would then connect to another server somewhere and say, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm SMTP.Cox.net with mail from Steve at Cox.net. Well, Due to this new anti-spam approach, the remote server would say, I really want to make sure that you're a a qualified sender for email from Cox.net. And 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 Cox would say yes, you know, I, I you know that's what I'm doing. I'm going to stand behind any Cox.net email. Now, what 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 Mike in Long Island is doing is he's sending email from you know, through Cox's server. So now when his email tries to go somewhere else, that somewhere else is saying, wait a minute, um, is this a, a valid source of mail? Now, the good news is, I don't know what, what his brother, who's, who's providing this forwarding service, what capabilities his brother has, but potentially if, his, if, if this were a problem with SPF. S- SPF is a DNS-based authentication system. If his brother has control of the DNS for this hypothetical domain lastname.net, his brother could put an SPF record, add a tech an SPF text record to the lastname.net domain authorizing Cox.net as a valid emitter of email for the lastname.net domain. So it's very possible that this problem could get solved by essentially at the lastname.net domain adding some SPF records to allow, essentially to permit Cox to be a sender of this guy's email. 
Microsoft has a wizard that will create this SPF record that you add to your DNS. So if you want to know more about that, do a Google search for Sender ID Framework Record Wizard and uh, on Microsoft.com. And you can fill it out, and then it gives you this little snippet. And you just drop it in your DNS. Yeah. Uh, of course, you have to have access to the DNS to do this. Right. And so, and, and this was, I was never, I never quite understood this. By the way, Microsoft describes this, in, actually has diagrams and stuff at Microsoft.com slash sender ID. Uh, I never understood this. So which end, does it, do, do both ends need this modified SPF record? It's the sender end that needs somebody to represent that that it's a valid sender. So, for example, when when email is trying to go to a remote server, the remote server sees first name at last name dot net. Yeah. The remote server then asks for the text records of lastname.net to find out who lastname.net has authorized as an originator Ah. of outbound email. So it would say cox.net as or whoever is cable provider is as one of the authorized senders. See, I need to do that because I use leo at leoville.com, but it doesn't come from leoville.com. It comes from other. uh, And so it's actually what I do in the reply to field is I use the the real, you know, ISP address in the reply to, which sometimes confuses people because they say, well, what is this I'm sending it to? Right, right. And and in fact, I mean the the good news is the the that the SPF protocol is very rich. You're able to give IP ranges, you can give network addresses, you can give domain names, you can do, you know, comma separated lists. You're able to really specify in a very nice and rich fashion what set of machines on the internet you, you know, are allowed to be senders of email from your domain. And it's, it's really cool. <sighs> and really complicated. And one of these days I'm going to understand it and I'm going to fix it. But meanwhile, if you don't get email from me, it could be, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least you tried. At least though. I tried. It's, it just bounced around. It just bounced just, around the net a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am completely sympathetic with the, the ISPs, but so many of us now use this kind of, forwarding technique yep uh it's just i don't know what there's i don't know we've got to find a way dell in wyoming michigan and if that's not confusing maybe his question will be i know in fact he's been going wait a minute wyoming, wyoming michigan, michigan? sure enough there is a there is a a town with a state name in michigan i've been hoping to hear some follow-up on ei's blink program now that there's been a few weeks to test it out does it work as advertised how much does blink slow down a system if at all any noticeable failings or is more testing required I have to defer to you, Leo. I know that you had installed it for a while. I just haven't gotten around to it. And so I, I wanted to, to for, for Dale and everyone else who's probably wondering the same thing, I wanted to say, uh, I don't know yet. It's a lot like a, a firewall in the sense that when it sees outbound traffic, it doesn't know about it, asks for permission. So you get those pop-ups initially. Uh, I have done very limited testing on, on just a, a one or two machines. Uh, here's what I've found so far. It does seem to slow the machine down appreciably. Uh, as you would expect, it's doing a lot of security. It's doing a yeah. lot of stuff. Um, it is. It can be intrusive in the sense that it's a very strong firewall. So, for instance, I was using uh, a Synergy KVM uh, system that uses Ethernet to to pass a mouse back and forth between two different systems. That, of course, was immediately blocked. Um, and uh, I had to go in and say, okay, no, no, I want that port to be open. 
Um, but it does seem, I mean, now, here's the problem, and uh, I'm not equipped, and I, I don't know if you are, but uh, to test, you know, uh, the, the, how, how well it provides security. I mean, I'm just saying, I didn't get any bugs while I was using it, but there are suites, you know, leak test suites and so forth. You, you do one, I know, Steve, and there's other uh, ways to test these things against viruses and against attacks and against leaks, and I haven't done that, so I don't know. Well, I do know from looking at some of the feedback in in our in the GRC's Security Now forum, which is uh, I will again commend to our use, to our listeners. Um, you need to have a a news group reader configured to news.grc.com to get there. But it's it's just a fantastic news group. I mean, I I depend upon it to to for sort of a real dynamic real time feedback from the group of people who both listen to this podcast and hang out in, on our news group server. Um, they immediately jumped on Blink, and there were you know there was I I had good reports and bad reports. There was someone who complained that Blink didn't like the protocol that his news group reader was was yeah. using some of the packets were being flagged as potentially hostile by blink so there was an instance of a false positive some people perform, uh, did notice a performance hit others whether there was one or not didn't notice or 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 complain so and there was one problem and that is that apparently in some independent analyses um Blink did not fare well in the classic leak test tests because it's really not trying to compete in that category. You know, it's it's working to prevent bad stuff from getting in rather than trying to, after something gets in, create containment for something that, that gets in. So, you know, the leak tests that are checking it for like cross-process vulnerabilities and 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 code injection exploits. There are programs that will do a much better job of that because that's what they're trying to protect against. Whereas Blink is saying, you know, we're going to protect you from unknown vulnerabilities. And the bad news is that's a hard thing to test. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know that the EI guys have a suite of junk that they they, they, they blast at their machines. Typical users don't. So it is hard to independently verify it, exactly as you said, Leo. Yeah, the tests you're talking about, uh, I think, are from Matusek, M-A-T-O-U-S-E-C dot com. And uh, they rated Blink very poor, along with uh, a lot of well-known uh, firewall programs, including Zone Alarm Free, uh, and say that Komodo is, the free Komodo, C-O-M-O-D-O, is uh, the best anti-leak and, protection. And unfortunately, what has happened is Komodo, while it's the best, it has been written to be the best. Right. It's designed for say, leak tests. <laughs> it is, exactly. Right. They, they went in and they solved, they, they deliberately fixed every type of exploit right. that was being tested for. So it, do, you know, it doesn't really mean anything except that it's the best solution for leak tests. It doesn't say anything about what would happen if, if a bad packet, an, an exploit, came in through a protocol that you were deliberately allowing right. and took over your machine. That's what Blink blocks. And as far as I know, nothing else does. Right. Yeah, it, that's that difficult. It's so hard to test a security application. It's just really tough. And I don't even attempt to do it. Um, I, 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 would, I would say if you, my, my impression of Blink is if you have a, a relative uh, who is, you know, you really want to lock this person down. Maybe it's a teenager who uses file sharing software. Maybe it's your mom who's just not that sophisticated. Uh, and they can tolerate a little bit of uh, slowdown. 
uh, Blink is probably the best way to just kind of lock their machine down. Well, and and given its track record, which I Absolutely. I think is is proven, yeah. where it is preemptively blocking things months. I mean, many months. You, you know, not quite years, but but chunks of years in advance of their being fixed. Um, I think it's still valuable protection. Brandon, writing from an undisclosed location, asks a few weeks ago. I remember hearing an episode that talked about a program that would show hard drive usage. By program, but I can't remember the name. Do you remember what that was? I really do, and it's something I rely upon. It's free. It's called Spacemonger, S-P-A-C-E-M-O-N-G-E-R. He wants the free version, which is version 4. It it got up to version 1.4, and then Sean, the program's author, decided, okay, I'm going to start again. I'm going to really do an amazing one, which is not free. It's version 2 point something or other. Um, I find that the free 1.4 is everything I need. What I love about it is that it gives you a a graphical map of the of, of your hard drive, where you can see using a series of nested rectangles where your hard drive space went. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I have 120 gigs drive, and now I've only got 10 gig free. Where did it go? And so with this thing, you instantly see. For example, those nine DVDs at 4.7 gigs each that you ripped onto your hard drive and then forgot about because they're sitting there occupying a huge rectangular chunk of your screen and you go, oh, and right click on it and delete them right there. So it's a very cool tool and it's free and I, you know, I just love it. Uh, Spacemonger.com or I think it's Spacemonger into Google. It's called Old Spacemonger (laughs) because that's the 1.4. And he, he, I'm sure he wishes I weren't telling everyone it's all they need. But unfortunately, he wrote a really good one before he tried to obsolete it. And uh, it just works beautifully, and it's free. There are a number of other programs that do this kind of thing. In fact, there's an open source one on SourceForge. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Yeah, but Leo, I don't like it. Um, oh, you I tried, tried it? to. Use, it's not nearly as nice. Okay. Um, yeah, it just it doesn't. The, um, I was using something called Disk Mapper from the guy who originally created instant recall um i think that was the tool it was it was something it was an old dos app i was using as my 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 general repository of all information really cool tool and he came out with it with disk mapper which i purchased years ago but it really hasn't kept up and for you know again this thing is free and it just works perfectly spacemonger and there are equal programs on os 10 as well as a matter of fact but i don't remember their names either somebody called the radio show and i've been trying to find them ever since a number of people emailed emailed them and now i've forgotten again uh so anyway but you've got one spacemonger Jeff B., being irradiated by his city somewhere in Tennessee, writes this long but terrific note. I'm wondering what you guys think about the ever-growing implementation of public Wi-Fi. Thus the irradiation that he's I get it now. Both by cafes and such, as well as entire cities. I keep hearing about places that are putting it up for the public to use, but I rarely see anyone talk about the security or lack thereof. Well, you must have been listening to our show. Yeah. Yeah or my radio show, or any of the other... <laughs> that just yep. plain bugs me, to be honest. Worse yet, it's almost like some places try to cover up the security implications just to make the whole thing look better. Case in point, my town is implementing a citywide Wi-Fi access. My town is doing the same, as a matter of fact. Ah. It's been boasted about on the news and newspaper as a great way to attract more businesses to the area and such, and I think that's true. Sounds like flawed logic, but whatever. Anyway, I got tired of the total lack of the security aspect being covered, and I responded to a story about it 
on the local newspaper's website in the comments section, pointing out some of the implications to not being particularly careful on public Wi-Fi ways to protect yourself. I was careful to sound polite and helpful, but despite other comments showing up, mine never did. Only one praising it ever appeared. People are thinking and being fed that it's just the best things in sliced bread. Who then thinks it's fine to go and do everything they do at home over and having no idea that all normal traffic can be snooped in general, along with more directed methods such as art poisoning, SSL man in the middle attacks, etc., etc., even various folks that think they're being careful by not doing things such as begging don't realize that every time they load a page, they're throwing cookies out at every HTTP request to a site, depending on the site, that makes it incredibly easy then to hijack their accounts. Also, <laughs> shall I go on? Also, they pointed out in the paper that this city Wi-Fi isn't made to replace their home internet. In one sentence toward the bottom of the article. But you know as well as I do, as soon as people can pick it up from their homes, they'll drop their cable DSL in a heartbeat. I don't know if I have a point to this message. Other than expressing my utter dismay at the lack of protecting people's privacy. But obviously, it's not just a local problem. And it's only going to get worse as more places think it's a great idea to slap some Wi-Fi repeaters up around town in an effort to make themselves seem more technological or whatever nonsense. Sign the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Signed, uh, Jeff P. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, we're not sure where he is, he's but upset. he's probably out on a sidewalk somewhere in Tennessee. <laughs> he has a good point. I mean, certainly we talk about it a lot. I probably talk about it every other show on the radio show because that's really the best uh, platform I have for getting information out about securing yourself and Wi-Fi. I mean, the radio show is listened to by a much more general audience than this is. If you listen to Security Now, we don't have to tell you about this stuff. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, it must be the case that any really public Wi-Fi system that is spread like that, it's in, there's no protocol for security, right? right. It's, it's an all-open system, and unfortunately, unless the users use VPN tunneling in order to tunnel themselves through a secure tunnel out of the wireless domain onto a wired backbone, which then goes to the Internet – um, everything they do is wide open. And his, you know, his point about grabbing HTTP session cookies is a really a good one because it's so easy to hijack someone's session if the server is relying on a cookie to identify them. And those are, unless they're over an SSL connection to the website, those are in the clear. And, I mean, easily sniffable. Right. And then you could use it to have a pa- because password could be there. Well, and just imagine the horror stories we're going to start hearing after this becomes widespread, Leo. And, you know, people are just sitting there sucking in public traffic, you know, everywhere in a city and going to town. Although I know that a number of these providers are looking and I'm not sure how it works, but they're looking at ways to make these things more secure. Well, I've had a T-Mobile account for a couple months now, and I have to say I was very impressed. First of all, I was obviously very skeptical when I went to the whole notion of of a public Wi-Fi, public hotspot. But they do nothing but full WPA encryption. That is, you cannot set it up open. You cannot right. use it with WEP. They have their own little client, and it is WPA. So, But that's a least- paid service. Yes, it is. And that's the key there. And if you're going to do an open hotspot, which is what municipal Wi-Fi frequently is, yep, that is inherently insecure unless they've come up with something to make it more secure. But I don't know. You know, I mean, I read about this everywhere. We talk about it all the time. I don't think the message gets out to most people. 
Um, I don't know. That's a very, it's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I could see that would be practical because, you, you know, you really, we know now that WEP is so badly broken that it takes a minute to crack, um, would, would be some, well, I, I, actually there isn't a good solution because even if everyone had a WPA key, if it was the same WPA key, you'd just log in and get, and be able to decrypt all the traffic then. So you, you would need the enterprise class WPA where you're doing per client passwords so that you, so that no two clients on the same access point are using the same key. But now you're talking a seriously expensive infrastructure. Yeah. I don't know what you do. I think that really the word does need to get out. And maybe free or inexpensive Wi-Fi security has to be uh, made available. Uh, you know, hotspot, you know, VPN has to be made available. Uh, if a city's going to do this, set up a VPN. Yeah, but then again, you got people who won't bother, and right. you know, if, if you let them get on the net without security, I think we're going to maybe go through a, a period where there's a lot of pain, and this gets a bad rep- reputation before it finally gets fixed. Because again, I think the barrier to entry, the barrier to entry for a wide adoption, has to be very low, or people won't use it. And very low means open. It means insecure. It means insecure, exactly. Well, once again, with that, we have come to the end of 12 good questions and, uh, and, and even better answers. You've done it, you've done it again, Steve Arena. I don't know <laughs> well, how you do it. I chose the questions. So oh, I, that's how. Yeah. Uh, I think that helped a little yeah, bit. That yeah. would have something to do with it. Well, I, I'm glad we uh, did talk about it, uh, all of these subjects. As usual, it's fascinating stuff. You learned so much. We'll do this again oh, and, on our 100th episode. And we're getting episode. such great, 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 great questions from our listeners. Yeah. So I do want to continue to encourage people to go to the bottom of the page, the ever-lengthening long page, <laughs> uh, Security Now, uh, you know, grc.com slash security now. Find your way to the bottom, and there's a form anyone can fill out. And unfortunately, some bots are doing that now, too. So oh, I'll to, man, I hate I, that. I'll have to do that. I'll have to fix something to, to <sighs> stifle the bots. Use a CAPTCHA or something. Every time, well, actually, every time you put actually, a form that, online. That, that's going to be one of our future podcasts is titled, Are You Human? Yeah. 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 There's some interesting uh, things going on to verify that. It's a huge problem. Very cool things. This this podcast, this podcast, as usual, brought to you by the good folks at Nerds on Site at IWantToBeANerd.com. They're growing. They need more nerds. We need more nerds. That's the call going out from Nerds on Site. All over the world, they need more nerds. Listen to this. Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and on and on and on. I was just in Vancouver the other day. And I saw uh, one of them driving by, and those cute little nerds on uh, site, uh, nerd on site. Um, they have Volkswagen Bugs, and they're just so they're so cute. The, these are people who are experts in a lot of different fields: PC, Mac, Cisco, Oracle, you name it. Nerds on site needs it. Fix it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers. Uh, they need people in sales. They need trainers. They need security experts. Antivirus gurus, especially <clears throat> especially those nerds who troubleshoot, tear apart, and rebuild their own systems. Just for fun. If you're one of those people, you need to be a nerd. Nerds are independent contractors, so you'll st- you'll be in business for yourself, but just not by yourself. You focus on your passion and not the burdens of running a business. Find out more. In fact, uh, sign up to, to go to a nerds-only meeting in your area today at www.iwanttobeanerd.com. I want to be a nerd.com. Nerds on sign. We thank them so much for their support of security now. 
Can you believe it? It'll be our 100th episode the next time we do this. Yeah, very cool. We're going to have to do something special. Well, you know, I've been talking about having a special plan, but I'm a little worried about time getting away from me. I've been asked to keynote a conference at Harvard on spyware wow. um, in a couple of weeks. And what the, the plan I had for the special 100th episode is going to take a, a lot of time. And other things have been burning up my time until you know then. What? So Don't worry about it. We're um, not doing but, anything special for Twitty either. It, we'll the, get there. The, we get these milestones. The milestone is in and of itself the success. Well, it'll be fun to be there at 100 <laughs> in four weeks, Leo. We're going to beat you, though. <laughs> Twit's going to beat you. <laughs> I know, I know. You you thought you might. It was a horse race. Well, who knows? Anything could happen. It's not, it's not done yet. Let's do two, how far behind are we? we start, four behind. Because, ooh. Uh, By the time no this time. comes out, we're recording this a little early. By the time this comes out, Twit will have done its 100. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Steve. Ah, well, wait till we get to 200. We'll lap them. All right. For more information about the things we talk about and, of course, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired transcripts, too, for those who like to read along, you can go to GRC.com. That's Steve's website where you'll find all sorts of information about security now. That's GRC.com slash security now. You'll also find Shields Up, his great program to test and his own leak test program, too, to test firewalls, all the great security programs he offers for free and his bread and butter, the great SpinWrite. The ultimate disk maintenance utility. GRC.com. Steve, have a great week. We'll see you next Thursday. You know, Leo, that you, you, you mentioned my own leak test utility. Mine is the dumbest one of them all. <laughs> and he's proud of it, folks. It is, it is so dumb. And it is the number one most downloaded thing I have. Isn't that funny? I, I mean, you know, I'll come up with some new security thing and it'll, for a couple of weeks, it'll be number one. And then it slips back right down. And leak test just sits there. Just being, I don't know who's downloading it, but I mean, it's so dumb. Well, now you know why the people like Komodo and the other firewalls are tuning their firewalls to be resilient to leak tests. It's because yeah. of you. People really do care. People, yeah. There's something about leak tests that people get it and they want it. Whatever it is, I don't know what it does, but I want it. Yeah, well, believe me, they got it. I mean, it uh, six, I don't know, I don't even know what the count is now, but it's Billions. just a phenomenal number. You should have charged for it, Steve. Yeah, a friend of mine said, just get a dollar for each one. It's like, you, know, you don't understand the amount of overhead associated with getting a dollar. Cost, I mean, exactly, it's, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. substantial. In fact, it's funny. One piece of email that I read while I was preparing for this Q&A asked me a really interesting question that I think I think I might actually do a whole episode on. He said, you know, Steve, you've mentioned several times that you wrote your own e-commerce system from scratch. What are you most proud of and least proud of? That is like, did you make any bad mistakes? And I did make one that's really kind of funny. And he said, and, you know, what are you most proud of? I thought, well, that's really an interesting question. But it wasn't something that I can cram into a few minutes. And I think people would find it interesting. So we'll probably, we'll, we'll do that one of these days. I think that'd be a great subject. Let's do it. Well, I'm most proud of uh, bringing hundreds of thousands of people to this show every week. I think it's a really great public service. And I thank you so much for doing it. We We'll be we'll we'll adjourn, but we'll be back reconvene next week for more security information. Thank okay, you, Steve. And, and in the meantime, Leo, I'm not letting you go. In the meantime, <laughs> I had the chance to bring up the download page. Leak test has been downloaded six million six hundred <laughs> six more more uses than Shields Up. No, no, Shields Up is fifty million. Isn't fifty it? million, yeah. yeah. But still, uh, okay. if you charged a buck. Six million six hundred and sixty-one thousand eight hundred and ninety-two times. Wow! And and about a thousand a day. 
Wow. Just a mind-boggling. Hey, everybody who is has used Shields Up, just send Steve a dollar, will you? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> buy, buy Spinrite because it'll be there when you need it. There you go. That's that's how we keep Steve in uh, in, in uh, Quinty Venti Lattes. There you go. All right. We'll talk to you next time, Steve. Bye, Leo. Security now.